You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Peter Ernest, the executive director of the museum. I served for some 36 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, largely as what is called an operations officer or a case officer. Every month we'll be bringing you interesting talks with visitors, with authors, with others who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. My guest today is Glenn Carl. Glenn is a former member of the CIA's clandestine service, and that's the part of the Central Intelligence Agency that carries out operations abroad, recruits agents, runs agents, and has been extraordinarily active through the whole uh, dealing with terror overseas, the war against Al-Qaeda, and so forth. He himself has served on something like four continents. He served in Washington. He has had a number of assignments concerning terrorism, and indeed his last assignment, he was the Deputy National Intelligence Officer, or NIO, for transnational threats on the NIC, the National Intelligence Council. He holds a BA from Harvard, and he has studied uh, uh, extensively in in, uh, France as well. Uh, Glenn has written a book which is called The Interrogator, Uh, It just came out uh, this year, and he calls it The Interrogator and Education. The Interrogator essentially is a narrative of his experience with the Counterterrorism Center in being sent to the field on a major case involving what's called a high-value target, HVT. And these are his experiences. And I must say, being a a fellow member of the clandestine service, Glenn, I have found this one of the most disturbing books I have read, uh, both about your personal experience, uh, and I must say you write eloquently about that. This is one of the best read books, uh, best written books, that I have read about the personal experience of a clandestine service officer. But I find both your experience with this case and your concerns about uh, policy, U.S. policy on these issues of rendition and so forth, Uh, as I say, I found them disturbing. What I'd like to do is go back and give our listeners a sense of what this case is. So, and I I realize I'm asking you to summarize something you've just spent 300 pages writing about, but the case that you're talking about here uh, is the Captus case, C-A-P-T-U-S, that was the pseudonym. So before I get into that, let me just ask you quickly, where were you on 9-11? On September 11, I was at working in one of the uh, 
outbuildings uh, at headquarters. It was not a headquarters building itself. It was elsewhere in, in northern Virginia. Uh, it was about 8.30 or so in the morning, I remember, and I was having a problem uh, with the, um, the finance department. I hadn't been paid for two months or something like that. And I was determined to straighten this out. So I was on the phone with some other part of the agency talking about my pay and trying to get my pay. When my uh, office mate poked his head in uh, to the office and said, hey, uh, a plane just flew into the World Trade Center. And, and I was a little abrupt, actually, with him and sort of dismissing him. Uh, I refused, and I was consistent throughout the day in my efforts and in my failures, um, refused to be diverted from my determination to straighten headquarters out so that I could get paid. And so I continued on the phone. And then a few minutes later, he came back in even more agitated, my office mate, and he said, a second plane has hit the World Trade Center. And there was a big commotion, and there were a lot of people watching the television, which was in an outside office. And then the fellow on the other end of the line essentially said to me, uh, the finance person said, Glenn, uh, I, I want to help, but there's chaos here. I can't do anything. You, you know what's going on. No, everyone is focused on, on the events, and uh, we've all just been ordered to evacuate, uh, so I, I can't help. And uh, so I had to give up in my effort to get paid and eventually work my way home. Uh, and that was my uh, immediate uh, involvement or experience when 9-11 happened. But I think you were also um, personally touched by this. As I recall, there were people you knew uh, who had been uh, at my, the World Trade Center that day. Yes, uh, that's true. There were three people. Uh, my wife knew two quite well, and I knew one well. Uh, the person that I knew was John O'Neill, and he had been the special agent in charge of the New York um, FBI office. And he and I had worked, uh, he was the FBI's lead officer for terrorism for years, uh, and I had worked terrorist-related uh, cases uh, for years prior to 9-11. So his um, staff and I worked quite closely, and he and I on occasion would work together. Uh, so I had seen him several months, possibly, uh, before 9-11 for the last time, several uh, FBI officers and CIA officers went to a Yankees game. Uh, of course, I rooted against the Yankees. Uh, and my last recollection was seeing him leaning against a lamppost talking on a cell phone as I walked into the stadium. My wife knew two people, two young women, quite well. Uh, my wife organized the protocol events. She was chief of protocol for the United States mission to the United Nations. And she had people she hired on contract to do the uh, setting up the tables or serving the meals, all of the attendant work of her function. And uh, she said her two of her best employees were young women. They were the best because they were very diligent um, in, in their duties. And these two women had a function that they were going to work uh, for at the windows of the world, at the top of the World Trade Center. And because they were uh, excellent employees, they arrived an hour early. It was a nine o'clock function, and they were trapped uh, on the top. Well, I ask you that and take you back to that period because what comes out so clearly in the in the beginning of the book is how highly motivated uh, you were to participate in the fight against Al Qaeda, both as a CIA officer at the time, but also because you had been personally affected by the events that happened. So let me take you now to. Uh, 
the case, the case of Captus, who was the high-value target uh, that I referred to. And again, I realize this is hard, but to the extent you can, could you, could you summarize that case for the listeners? Um, I, I hope we'll have time to get to some questions about it. But I know this is the kernel of your book, so if you could just summarize it for us. Well, I had not worked on uh, what we can call the Captus case, uh, or in this uh, part of the counterterrorism center at all prior to my involvement in the interrogation. But I was um, approached by my my boss approached me and uh, said. Uh, how is your language? And the agency wouldn't let me say the language, but you can work out what language it is. It's quite foolish. Uh, isn't it? It's pretty good. And I said, well, no, it's... And I could tell this was a serious query. He never came to my office talking about things idly. And I said, no, it's not pretty good. My, I, I'm relatively often taken for a native speaker, uh, so I'm really very good at, at the language. And he said, uh, okay, um, I want you to go uh, TDY, which is a business trip overseas, uh, tomorrow, I need you out of here tomorrow. Uh, it's important for the agency, it's important for uh, the country, and it's important for you. Can you do it? And that's all I knew. So put that way, of course, you, you know, you're going to say yes, but I, I said, well, let me speak to my wife uh, first. Because my wife had had, had some grave health uh, issues, and, and in any event, uh, disappearing for 30 to 90 days, as he had said, you know, you want to go over this if you can with your spouse anyway. So when presented uh, to her as it had been to me, she said, well, of course you're, you, know, you go, obviously. And uh, so I told my boss, and he said, go speak to so-and-so elsewhere in the building in the counterterrorism center, and he will uh, brief you on the case. And that's all that I knew. And this man, so I found the, uh, the colleague, the officer, uh, who closed the door. And for those not in the agency, um, it, closing the door is a bit unusual, actually. I mean, you only do that for things that are more than normally sensitive. So obviously this is a, uh, it was quite clear that it had something to do with the war on terror. We're talking the counterterrorism center. Beyond that, I, that's all I knew. And I, he told me, we have uh, captured, we have rendered, uh, which for a layman in this context would mean kidnapped off of a street in the Middle East, one of the very top members of Al-Qaeda one of the top handful uh, people in the organization. And uh, we believe that he can uh, probably lead us to bin Laden, and at the least, he can provide information that will allow us to seriously damage Al-Qaeda as an organization. He's not cooperating. The interrogation is not going well. It had only been going on for three days or something. I think three days. Uh, and we want you uh, to become involved. And that's how I came to be uh, initially aware, anyway. Well, so we take you, we take you from a headquarters setting in which you're, the, the case is framed as extraordinarily important. Um, and I know you, were, uh, you went to the field uh, from that point uh, and uh, pretty much immediately were put into, the, uh, put into the case. The chief of station you refer to as Peter in this narrative and uh, he was essentially your supervisor. Mm -hmm. uh, you comment on what you consider the, uh, and I'll use the word ineptitude, of the person who was assigned at that time to the case. And I think the COS agreed with you, and so fairly rapidly you became the principal interrogator, which you've taken as the title of your book. Mm -hmm. 
could you give us a sense of that experience, how it went and how it terminated? Uh, not how it finally terminated, yeah. but in you, that is your experience of the case. Yeah, well, I'll jump back a little bit sure. from, from uh, the moment when I started to interrogate him to the second conversation or briefing I had, which is, uh, I think, pretty important because it, it uh, clearly established for me immediately what the critical issues would be for me and frankly that led me to to write the book uh, I'll just I'll note I think it's important I didn't write this book to as a memoir or to tell a tale of daring do uh, although it isn't a memoir of an operation and there is the standard spy daring do in it um, I wrote it because of the issues that I had to wrestle with that are relevant profoundly relevant to Americans in general uh, but we'll, we'll get to that so I saw the second person and he said, we've captured this fellow, and so on, as I've described. And he said, uh, you will do, these are just direct quote, you will do whatever it takes to get him to talk. Do you understand? And I understood. Uh, but I remember distinctly thinking, I, I can't possibly use the word torture. That's just inconceivable for a CIA officer or an American uh, officer to even talk about that. So I said, well, we don't do that. And his response was, we do now. Uh, from that moment, I, it was just clear to me that I was becoming involved in, in probably the critical professional issue of my career. But also, I quite consciously thought from that moment on, it was also one of the critical moments, I thought, for the CIA since World War II to be talking about these issues. So I said, well, we would need at least a presidential finding to do that, which is a term of art for laymen, which means a direct presidential order to the CIA to conduct a specific operation because the president has found that it is the national security interest to, to do whatever extraordinary step he, he orders you to take. So I said, we would need at least direct presidential order. And my briefer, uh, with a bit of satisfaction, actually, in his expression, said, well, we have it. And the it, I learned, was, I assumed it was a finding. Uh, it was never a finding, and that's relevant for the cognoscenti of uh, how the agency does its business, because uh, a finding requires very formal procedures and authorizations of different parts of the government. What we had was a letter written by the president, a much simpler step with fewer controls, frankly. And the letter was written by the now infamous John Yu in the Department of Justice. And it was the get out of, it was the uh, do what you want letter that said, I, the president, authorize you to do whatever is necessary. And if I authorize you, it's therefore legal. That was the, that was the letter, essentially. And I, and I eventually saw it and I thought, oh my, this is just unbelievable that, that one would assert and others would accept that uh, someone could say, well, if the president gives an order, it is ipso facto legal. I thought, you know, we're no longer a government of laws. It's just unbelievable to me. So I thought, well, gosh, I, I had two thoughts. I guess these were thoughts, not statements. I thought, well, we are at war. I guess the rules have changed, but everything has been done appropriately. Because I specifically asked if we had a presidential finding, and I was told that we had. I thought, okay, the rules have changed. But then I thought, well, this is 
a critical moment, as I have said, for the agency and for myself. And of all times in my career, this is the time not to just be complacent and to go along. And so I said, well, what about the Geneva Convention? Which is not something you as a former DO officer will, will know. The Geneva Convention is not a normal subject of conversation in the Directorate of Operations. You know, our job is to break laws and to follow and obey ours and to leave to the lawyers and the State Department the issues that I was raising. But it was just obvious to me that, that this was a relevant and important point. So I said, what about the Geneva Convention? And at that point, the, the fellow briefing me, my headquarters counterpart to what I would become in the field, running the case, the interrogation, had done everything correctly. He had uh, briefed me on the case, told me what I was expected to do, ordered to do, and informed me that the president, the attorney general, the Department of Justice, the director of the CIA, and the chief of the counterterrorism center all had formally authorized, approved, and ordered me to do the following thing. So who am I, the equivalent of a lieutenant colonel, basically, at the time, to challenge this when I'd been briefed on the case for all of four minutes or something like that? So he became disdainful, and his response was, well, which flag do you serve? And at that point, I thought, well, I've, I've gone as far as I can plausibly go here. And so I gave a noncommittal answer. But it was immediately apparent to me that these were the issues involved. So now we'll jump ahead. I'm overseas, and I see the uh, interrogation, the first interrogation. And the fellow who was doing it was a sensible choice initially. He knew more uh, about the detainee than anyone alive in the U.S. government. He had, his job had been to follow this man's life. He knew everything about him. But he was not an operations officer. He was not one either by uh, psychological constitution or training or experience. Someone who knew how to deal with other people and manipulate them and, and assess them. He was a normal guy who was an analyst who sat in his cubicle analyzing information. Whole different personality type. And his interrogation, or what passed for it, was, I just thought, well, ridiculous implies humor, and, and I could be humorous about it, but it was just uh, terrible and, and useless. And so I um, pretty quickly was able to uh, maneuver him out and myself in, and then I started to uh, have to figure out how to interrogate somebody. The, uh, and of course, the, your experience in that interrogation constitutes the core of the book. Um, but in a word, uh, you came to believe that, the, that this high-value target was not at all who we had thought he was, who the agency came to believe was. He, he did not represent any high value. He was not in a position to help us get into the upper elements of, of, of Al-Qaeda. And so you you, as, as I read uh, towards the end of the, you know, towards the end of the book, came to the conclusion uh, that, that he, in fact, was not worthy of even being kept as a prisoner, that he had no value at all, that he was, in fact, telling the truth in denying that he could answer any of the questions that, that uh, you were all looking for the answers to. Uh, that's th essentially right, and he was fundamentally truthful to me. Uh, not always. Uh, he was not a complete innocent. 
he did have information that was relevant to the CIA for counterterrorism work. He did have associations with people, uh, who, with terrorists. Uh, so the agency got didn't randomly pick up someone with no um, links, a bad word, but no links to al-Qaeda. Um, he was relevant. But one of the stunning uh, aspects of the whole case is how fundamentally fundamentally wrong uh, our assessment was. Because as you summarized, I concluded, uh, and I, I'm, I know I was right, uh, that he was not really what we had asserted he was. He was not someone who had sworn bayat to bin Laden. He was not part of al-Qaeda. He was not a jihadist. He was not consciously, actively, regularly complicit or engaged in or with uh, the organization. Um, he, he just wasn't. So I thought, well, there's no problem in making a mistake, particularly in a time of war. Collateral damage does exist. I have, this, this just will happen. Uh, but when human lives are involved, if we can rectify an error, then it's one's duty to do so. It was just straightforward to me. And um, professional, institutional, or personal embarrassment um, or even operational problems do not justify uh, destroying people's lives to, um, in a refusal to right a mistake. So it was clear to me. Uh, Glenn, I know we can't get into all the details of, of your experience with Captus, but let me just ask you this. When he, he simply failed to be able to answer the questions you had, give you the secrets that you, you thought he was holding, what was this is in the first country you were in what was the response of the people your supervisors the people that were directing you but yeah this is really important and really disturbing as i've mentioned uh fundamentally he answered uh truthfully well he, he answered my questions and i was often able to assess independent of his statements that he was answering truthfully most of the time that was the case sometimes he did not tell the truth and other times, and I was able to verify that, although not ascertain what the truth was necessarily. And then other times he couldn't answer, or, and I would report all of the above back to headquarters. And the response was, um, the, and I'm not, this is not exaggerated. This is how it went. Uh, the fact that he has not answered proves that he is withholding information. Pressure him more. It was always pressure. It was never do specific X, Y, or Z. It was pressure, pressure, pressure. Be creative with the clear, unstated um, implication that I would do whatever it takes. Well, I just found this laughable, but really disturbing, because the lack of answer does not prove that he's withholding information or guilty. And I would argue that point. And the response would still be, no, the fact that he has not answered proves that he is guilty. Therefore, pressure him more. So my thought was, well, I'm dealing with, frankly, someone who's stupid. Okay. I mean, we all, that's possible. So what? I mean, this is an issue for me to, to worry about, but, but that's the limit of the, the stupidity, I thought, was an individual case. But I was wrong. In fact, I learned several years later, that was the formal doctrine of the Directorate of Operations, and this came out in an Inspector General's report that was declassified in 2009. And the doctrine was, 
If the detainee does not answer, that is proof that he is withholding information, is therefore highly trained in resistance methods and needs to be pressured with enhanced measures more. I just find that stupid, disturbing, wrong, counterproductive, and frightening, frankly, as, as from every angle. Um, so that's how the dynamic went, uh, at least in that regard. There are any number of other Kafka-esque elements which we can go into if you'd like. Glenn, I realize you moved on from the case, but did you ever have an opportunity to find out what, in fact, had happened to Captus after you had been removed from the case? I left the case essentially January 1st, 2003. I moved on to other um, assignments, and of course, under the need-to-know um, you know, approach, which is appropriate, uh, I knew really nothing more that had happened. I tried to have my recommendations carried out, but I knew that they had not been. And then I, on I went to a new life. I retired in 2007. I had heard a couple of comments over the four years that he remained in detention. And I learned um, in 2000, I, I, it was, let's see, essentially December of 2010, uh, I learned that he had uh, actually been freed earlier in, that, in the year, in 2010, uh, with what was described to me as a muted apology from the United States government, end of story, which quite clearly proves that uh, it substantiates or corroborates, validates, proves right every single point I had argued as well as I was able to in 2002 uh, at a cost of uh, eight years of this man being, so far as I'm aware, in solitary confinement. You know, I think what uh, comes out so strongly for me, having been in the, in the clandestine service, having been in the DO, is that I thought you took really the most honorable way you could to raise serious questions about this case uh, in sending your thoughts very clearly back to, to headquarters in, in two cables that you wrote from the field, uh, both of which, from your account, the field simply refused to send in. But you also, I have the sense, in raising the case, even when you got back, sort of ran into willful, um, not willful ignorance, but willful refusal to hear your discussion absolutely. of the case and the issues that it raised. Oh, absolutely. But I think that's a very serious yeah. uh, charge, if you will. It, well, it's, it's uh, I've run out of uh, adjectives and my thesaurus is, is too limited, but it, it's deeply, profoundly disturbing. I do mention in the book that I had a long stew three conversation. That's a secure telephone conversation from the, the country where I was interrogating him, the second one, which many people will have worked out, although I'm, I'm not allowed to say where it was. Everyone can figure out where it was. With, uh, I had this conversation uh, with uh, the desk officer essentially handling the case day to day and uh, back at headquarters, the man who came to replace me in the end. And I had this conversation because people in the agency will know a, a Stu 3 conversation, a, a classified telephone conversation, doesn't have a written record. So one can speak more freely. And a colleague who's a friend can give you the atmospherics and the context and tell you, well, uh, Bill is hostile to you, but Mary is supportive. And so perhaps if you word things this way, they can help you work through the case in a way that is impossible through the formal exchanges of telegrams. In this conversation, uh, he made clear to me 
what I, well, I, I had known this all along, is that, that uh, I was at odds with the individuals running the case at home and with the entire institution, and that uh, I had to be aware of this because it could endanger what I wanted to do in the case and, of course, put me at some jeopardy, too. Uh, so I was aware of these things, and I tried to work the system successfully, but I, but I failed. And it was just clear, clear. It was implicitly and explicitly clear that um, no one was going to let me undo the entire the triumph of that office and one of the signal triumphs in the war on terror uh, for the entire U.S. government, which was this case, so it was perceived. It's a very difficult task for one officer to challenge the accepted uh, policy decisions and perceptions of an institution. And so you, you develop a growing sense of isolation. You know, there's a phrase that, that was used, uh, I don't know where, when it became current, probably after the Nuremberg trials and so forth, the good German. And that is those who yeah, carried out the most dreadful Schreck. actions because they received orders to, and therefore they were being orders. Yeah. And you're describing a situation not dissimilar from that at all. You are describing a situation in which you were directed to carry out orders you felt uh, did not have legitimacy. Let me just ask mm -hmm. you, to what extent are your views, your impressions, your experiences shared by other officers in the agency? Maybe not all of them, but by some. Well, it's a very important question and issue, I think. Uh, while I was writing the book, of course I had retired, but I had occasional contact with former colleagues. Um, a couple said, um, you shouldn't do this. Uh, you'll get yourself in trouble. One, that's a nice thing for them to caution me about. And two, um, you're aiding and abetting the enemy. What are you doing? You don't air dirty laundry. Stop. And I write about them in the book, and I think they're profoundly in error. Uh, others, and I think a larger percentage, yes, um, said to me more furtively, but um, with more emotion, uh, Glenn, please write this book. Somebody has to tell the truth to Amer the American public about what we are doing to ourselves. Please do this. I explicitly had the good German and the Nuremberg trials and examples in mind, literally, them. Uh, and this is why I wrote the book, because it was frankly frightening uh, that CIA officers, in the conduct of our um, uh, responsibilities, fulfilling our responsibilities, uh, dare not speak frankly to one another, in-house. Uh, and when someone did challenge the policies of the government, uh, that person would be destroyed. I, I had an office uh, colleague it's a longer story than probably one wants to go into here, but, but uh, he became, well, Paul Pillar, he was a national intelligence officer, and, and he gave a speech, a public speech, and then an offline dinner, and his dinner partner said uh, to him, this is 2004, um, didn't the CIA think that there might be uh, a civil war in Iraq if we invaded? And his response essentially was, well, of course we were concerned about that. That was it. He was then denounced, this is a quote by uh, supporters of the administration, as a traitor who should be tried for treason. And uh, we know what happened in the Joe Wilson, the Valerie Plame issue. 
Joe was my first boss, and he just wrote a factual account of what he did not find. That was it. And, and he was essentially, uh, opponents tried to destroy him, and on and on. So in-house, in the agency at that time, it, one could not uh, really safely challenge orthodoxy. Worse than that, the orthodoxy led us to conduct, um, take actions and have policies and have beliefs that are inimical, um, the opposite of what it is to be an American. That's why I wrote the book, because now we are, even today, uh, there are what pass for rational, dispassionate discussions about the merits of torture, and should Americans do it? That's shocking. That one, there, There's no rational discussion to have on that point. That point has been resolved over the past 800 years, pretty clearly, um, except for now. That's why I wrote the book. Well, Glenn, I think you've written a very important book, and I think it's a book that needs to be read, and I think it needs to be discussed, and I think it needs to be discussed by the people involved uh, in the intelligence discipline, in setting the policy for the intelligence discipline, and by those, who, those of us who carry it out. So I think it's a, a, a very important contribution you've made. Again, for those who are listening, the book is called The Interrogator, an Education, published by Nation Books, by Glenn Carl, C-A-R-L-E. Um, I think it is a book that uh, uh, is well-deserving of attention as we uh, continue to deal with this phenomenon of, of terrorists and terrorism. And uh, Glenn, I thank you for writing it and uh, look forward to seeing you here again at the museum. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you. I appreciate your time. Well, we look forward to uh, continuing uh, this dialogue with you. And uh, we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast, uh, you can get in touch with us uh, through email at spycast at spymuseum, that's one word, dot org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us. Mm -hmm.